On November 11, 1620, off the coast of Cape Cod, the first foundation of English government was laid by the fledgling colony of English migrants known today as the Pilgrims. In Mort's relation, early chroniclers of the colony's history described the scene aboard Mayflower. They wrote, observing some not well affected to unity and concord, but gave some appearance of faction, it was thought good there should be an association and agreement that we should combine together in one body and to submit to such government and governors as we should, by common consent, agree to make and choose. Since they were no longer within the bounds of their patent, and therefore the terms they had all agreed to, including a common course of labor and worship in the reformed manner, could be void, factions felt that they could take the opportunity to seize their own liberty, since none had the power to command them. Those who argued for sticking together and fulfilling their contract to their investors ultimately won the argument, and on November 11, 1620, all 41 male passengers representing 20 families would sign their names and agree to covenant and combine together into a civil body politic. Decades later, William Bradford would refer to this moment as their first foundation of government. But what did it mean to covenant and combine together in the 17th century, and what does it mean for us today? To find some answers to these questions, I met with Plymouth's Deputy Executive Director and Senior Historian Richard Pickering on a bright sunny fall day in the museum's visitor center to explore David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain, A Quest for a Moral Life. In The Second Mountain, David Brooks explores four commitments that define a life of meaning and purpose. We wanted to see how his ideas applied to 17th century communities and how they might better help us understand our communities today. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Good to see you, Hillary. Now, you chose this book for our Fall Coffee and Conversation series. So I want to start by asking why you felt David Brooks's The Second Mountain was an important work for us to consider during the 400th commemoration of Mayflower's arrival in the Wampanoag homeland. One of the reasons that we set up the Coffee and Conversation was in an age prior to pandemic, David Brooks was going to be speaking here at the museum on October 3rd. And we invited him because as we were looking at his writing in the New York Times over the last two years, he's become very interested in the idea of the covenanted community. And he would like contemporary villages or towns to have a village covenant and to make a statement about how they will live together what their town will be dedicated to. One of the arguments that Brooks makes is that a good life begins with commitment rather than contract. He writes, a commitment is a promise made from love, a commitment in making a promise to something without expecting a return out of sheer lovingness. In light of this idea, what significance did compacts and covenants hold in 17th century church or civil communities in England? The way people stood together and said, we are going to walk a common path in the way of Christ as we perceive it. So if you were born in England in the 16th or 17th century, you were a member of the Church of England simply by being born within the nation, simply by being baptized as a child. But for Reformed Christian churches like Plymouth, and those that would follow in Boston, 
people agreed to covenant together and create their own body and they would be governed by officers, a minister, a teacher, a ruling elder who kept good order within the church, deacons who ministered to the sick and to the dying and the poor, and deaconesses who were older women, usually widows who might have been left with little substance, and so the church would support them by making them deaconesses. The idea was that you were in a small body where you could be watched, where you could watch your fellow Christians to make certain that everyone was living an orderly life. It was that idea of supporting one another um, in kindness and in discipline. How does that translate into a civil model? If you think about those that came over on Mayflower, part of that body of 102 passengers, they had been walking commonly under a church covenant for 14 years by 1620. They had a history one with another. They had an articulated responsibility to each other. But that meant that those who joined with them in London or Southampton weren't part of that contract. And I think the Mayflower Compact was an effort to fold everyone into a body so that if they couldn't be part of the, the church politic, they could be part of the civil body politic. And that meant they were standing together and by making a common statement, they were commonly responsible to each other. With the Mayflower Compact, can you talk a little bit about the process by which that compact came into existence and the famous scene that we all think we know on the Mayflower where all the men of the town sign it, some representing themselves, some representing their families. What, what of the mythology that we know is true and what are some things that, are, that we're revisiting? Uh, this is purely speculative on my part, Hillary, but I think, and what I'm finding is other historians, and we haven't been talking to each other, it's just kind of bubbling to the surface right now. We're beginning to wonder, because of the crystalline clarity of the Mayflower Compact, when you consider how short and beautifully constructed it is, and brevity is difficult. Uh, Mark Twain wrote a letter to a friend that said, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter, I didn't have the time to be brief because long writing is uncontrolled. And there are some of us now wondering if the compact was drafted in Holland under the supervision of John Robinson because it so closely resembles church covenant in the responsibilities that it articulates one to another. It's also very similar to the contracts when towns were purchasing rights to self-government and self-administration from lords of the manor. The language is very similar to the Mayflower Compact. And I wonder if the leaders in Leiden from the Robinson congregation were thinking, where we are compelled to have these people among us, where we're not large enough to go as a body and establish a settlement on our own, how are we going to bind these people to us? It's interesting that the way Governor Bradford's Chronicle of Plymouth Plantation is constructed, it's in two volumes. So the first volume covers 
the English Reformation up until about 1606, then the tribulations of the Scrooby Church, where the Plymouth Church began, their time in Holland, and Bradford gets them all the way to Cape Cod. They're already exploring the Cape, and he never, in volume one, mentions the Mayflower Compact. Years later, when he goes back to pick up the story again, he starts a volume two, and he said, this part of the book is going to be different than the first part. I don't have the time to construct volume two as I've constructed volume one. So it's just going to be year by year, and I'll tell you what happened in each year. But he said, I need to back up. And he takes the narrative back to while they're still off Cape Cod, there is trouble brewing because they can't get to Virginia where they have a patent to hold property in Northern Virginia. And he essentially congratulates themselves on the compact and holding themselves together. And he says, this was a more sure and certain form of government because it was voluntary. At the time he's writing, now Massachusetts has probably been settled for seven to 10 years. And I think he's looking back on what they accomplished as the first comers and that experimentation in transforming the church covenant tradition into a civil, civil covenant tradition. I think he's looking back and saying, we didn't realize it at the time, but it is remarkable. I want to talk a little bit more about William Bradford and his work of Plymouth Plantation. It's, uh, it's a Goliath of a source for <laughs> us here at Plymouth Patuxet. Um, but I, I also want to tie this to back to Brooks's book, The Second Mountain. And in it, the early chapters in particular, he's exploring this idea of vocation, a strong feeling or obligation to a particular career or occupation. And we think of this as a very contemporary idea. But I want to look at this in the context of William Bradford. Um, what do you think his vocation was? What drove him to serve his community as governor and magistrate? And what role did writing of Plymouth Plantation play in that? Uh, David Brooks talks about his second wife. And he said, she seems to be the only person that I've ever known who climbed her second mountain first so that she was a young person of incredible awareness and an understanding of relations and, and living within community, being responsible to family and others. She didn't have that, what he calls the first mountain, where you're a young person interested in career and ego and reputation. And he compares it to putting your ladder against a wall and realizing when you get to the top step, this is meaningless. And so now you've got to move that ladder and climb again. You've got to face that, that second mountain. And I'm wondering if William Bradford was very much like Mrs. Brooks, that he climbed his second mountain as a teenager. He had, we do not know what the illness was. We know that he was bedridden for a very long time. And during that period, he started reading the Bible. And there was a transformation to such a degree that he was being derided by the neighbors. Family was imploring him to change his direction because he was moving on towards the Reformed Church. 
And I think for him, he became very much aware of having a purpose in life when he had his conversion experience in his teens and that carried through for the rest of his life. He saw himself in very large terms, but I I disagree. There are some historians who see him as gigantic throughout his entire life. They rob him of an arc of learning and an arc of confronting challenge. And so what is it like, Hillary, when John Carver is dead, so the first governor who is chosen after Mayflower Compact is signed in November 1620, he dies by the late spring of 1621. So he hasn't even been in office six months or beyond six months. And the men come to William Bradford and ask him to assume that office. So amazingly, you have a fragile new community and there is this safe transfer of power in six months. There is order already. What is it about this young man that they come to him when you have others of stature that could be selected? Maybe there are some that are out of the selection pool. William Brewster has a responsibility to the church and there is a separation of church and state, but not in our contemporary understanding. In the 17th century, it's to protect the church, to make sure that all of the attentions of the officers are directed toward the church duties. So that takes William Brewster out of selection, possibly Samuel Fuller, the deacon, out of selection. Would you want to distract Miles Standish from his military duties? But what is it? about William Bradford that they saw over an Edward Winslow or over an Isaac Allerton, especially where he had died almost twice that winter. So he himself was in ill health and said, I will do this, but I need an assistant if I'm, if I'm going to succeed. I can't do this on my own. And I think throughout the course of his life, he rose again and again to those challenges. So it's an ordinary person like you and like me but when confronted, it's, it's like when Abigail Adams says to her son, John Quincy, challenging times are when men and women of virtue rise to that challenge. And I think that was the case with William Bradford and his peers. I think one thing I, I always need to remind myself and want to remind our listeners when we're talking about men like William Bradford, in these early years, they are young men. We think of them in our mind perhaps as older men with lots of experience, lots of training, lots of education. Our modern idea of a politician is very different from the men who were serving in Plymouth Colony in in the 1620s. These are men in their early 30s. Um, And I think that's always an important thing to keep in mind because when we think about these historical figures who loom so large in our national narrative, to think of them as, as you say, having a character arc, having an arc of learning, and giving them the benefit of youth and not expecting them to have the wisdom of their elders at age 30, just as we would not want to be expected to be wise beyond our years. Exactly, and the, the fact that they were willing to sacrifice themselves in some way. David Brooks talks about the that idea of losing yourself to gain yourself. And again and again, the men and women in Plymouth were willing to sacrifice something for the greater good. I think of Edward Winslow when Massasoit arrives with his men and they are 
signaling to each other across town brook you come to us no you you come to us and ultimately if there is going to be any intercourse between the two communities the english must send someone across to the Poconocket that have come to Patuxet. And Edward Winslow is asked to go and to speak with Tisquantum as his translator, and his wife is dying. And I often think where we can't identify the contagion of the first winter, but they knew what it was. Did they see that this was an illness that had a kind of patterning to it of a predictable weakening was he aware of how close to death she was when he agreed to go across that brook for the benefit of the town and so he makes his speech i always laugh that he thinks disquantum didn't translate it very well because he wanted it to have far more impact on massasoit than it did but he remains as a hostage to protect Massasoit's security when he's among the English. After there is a covenant of peace that is articulated between the Poconocket and the English, Massasoit returns across the brook and then he says to his brother, who is also a key figure in the story, now you go across the brook and, and talk to them. And I've often thought, what is it like that you're Edward Winslow, you see the party returning and you think, I can go home, I can go home, I can be with Elizabeth. And then now he has to stay longer while Quattaquina goes across the brook to negotiate with the English. So again and again, we need to remember those moments of, of human poignancy and when people are willing to give up of themselves for the sake of those around them. I want to pause for a minute. You mentioned uh, the Massasoit of Poconocket, uh, the Usamequin, which is his given name, what we know from the source material. Also a very large character in our story, but one that we have very little biographical information, um, unlike William Bradford, unlike Edward Winslow. From your study of these communities and these individuals uh, going on 30 years, what can you tell us about Usamequin um, in using Brooks's terminology? Does he have a second mountain from what you've studied over the years? And I am deeply grateful, Hillary, that you and I talked about this the other day so that I could start thinking on it. And as I was rereading Second Mountain for, I think this is my fourth time to get ready for today's conversation, thinking that possibly because of the integration of indigenous communities, of that connection familially, generationally, marriages being made between communities, the constant traveling for the reciprocity between communities to establish borders, to establish rights of resource uses, that there isn't the same kind of crisis that Brooks describes in a modern ecology sense. It almost seems to be a very Western thing, that climbing of the second mountain, because the communities aren't so completely integrated in community. Um, I think we could characterize it as tribal, but in a healthy sense, the contemporary use of the, the word tribal or tribalism often is talking about gangs or parties that they're bound together by a common hatred 
that they are isolated and lonely individuals who find association in an unhealthy way. But in the 17th century, I think it's an example of the tribal at its very best and giving people a richness of life that they're always supported. There's always someone to turn to. There, there isn't that need for the opioid. There isn't that experience of loneliness. But I think for Massasoit, there must have been incredible crisis, not a second mountain crisis. I think he always had a fullness of character. But what is it like when you watch your people and when you watch the communities around you dying in unimaginable numbers? And those men and women that you look to for their skills, the power and the elders, and they don't know what to do. And so I don't think it's a second mountain crisis. I, I think there always was that purpose, that richness, richness, that understanding of place. But I think there is an indescribable crisis for a leader who is seeing all the power within his region changing. He's watching his own numbers diminish. And how is he going to protect them? And if we look at the choices that he makes again and again and again, he is always putting his people's interest first. And what I find remarkable, remarkable about him, and this in much of the current discussion of the first years of English presence within the Wampanoag homeland, what is getting lost within the story is Massasoit's mastery. Uh, Nana Pashman, one of the great Wampanoag historians, always said that what gets missed in our understanding of Massasoit is his skill at realpolitik. And when you think about, once the English are here in Plymouth by that Christmas day, 1620, when they start building their houses, Massasoit and his people are choosing when they will be seen. They are controlling the communication. They are determining when they will be seen, in what numbers they will be seen, how they are presented as far as dress and decoration. And for these early years, it's always Massasoit arranging encounters and putting himself and his people in a position of power in contrast to the English. So that oftentimes the relationships get oversimplified as friendship. Oh, they were friendly Indians. And it, no, it's not to say there weren't friendships. We know that Habamak and Captain Standish develop a strong friendship over time. There's even tradition that at end of life, Habamak was living with the Standish family. So friendship is not impossible, but it should not be simplified into an easy friendliness. These were two communities that each had interests and what they could gain from the other and by that receiving English war technologies, by sharing native agricultural skills, knowledge of the land, access to furs, they are each strengthening one another. It is a realpolitik relationship that ultimately may create real human relations, but at the beginning it's how do we offer help one to another. The second half of the book, uh, and really the final third in particular, explores the stages of community building. 
So can you talk a little bit more about the Mayflower Compact, the Plymouth-Poconogan Alliance of 1621, and the 1621 Harvest Feast we call today the first Thanksgiving, as some of these foundational moments in community building, both in the 17th century and our communities today? And you and I have talked about it in this, the past, but more and more as I look at Mayflower Compact, I begin to see it as an almost political catechism that in his uh, recent book, A Republic If You Can Keep It, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch talks about how law in the country and law within federal agencies has grown so dense, no one can master it. He said, in some instances, agencies are handling law codes of 100,000 pages. Think about the simplicity of the 17th century. Mayflower Compact is this gorgeous little constitutional document that empowers Plymouth to begin creating institutions and legal and juridical and economic practices. As I understand it, the compact was read at every court session. If every court session begins with the affirmation of that compact. There are a series of law codes written between 1636 and 1685. The title page for every one of those law codes is the Mayflower Compact. So by the 1650s, when the second reform of the laws is done, under Thomas Prince and his body of counselors, it is enacted in law that the law code will be read out loud every year in every community. So Prince orders the manuscript copies for every one of the communities, and it is made a community tradition that the compact and all the laws are read to the men every year. And they're kept simple so that they can be remembered. It's an extraordinary experiment in civic education and reminding the, the citizenry, the voting men of their responsibilities. So you have the compact, a community that's being created in contractual relationship one to another. And then in March of 1621, you have the Poconocket and the English entering into a contractual relationship with one another. And I've often wondered did the English with, with the Massasoit use what was done with um, essentially apprentices who could not read? So if you were a young person and you were going to sign or mark an indenture with a potential master but you could not read, that indenture was read to you again and again until you could repeat it back. And that was the affirmation of understanding. And I wonder if, in English eyes, they practice what was done with illiterate apprentices because the Wampanoag at this point were pre-literate. A written language was a few decades away. And so that repetition was affirmation. I don't know. But Nana Pashman always said, from that moment forward, all the interactions between the Poconocket and the English for the Poconocket were reaffirmations of that of that alliance that the face-to-face -face interaction the exchange of gifts the exchange of company 
in, in native eyes, that was a continuation of, of the covenant of peace that was made in March. And really, the event we call the first Thanksgiving now, the, the Harvest Feast of 1621, in Nanapashmet always said, in native eyes, that was the ultimate um, affirmation of what had happened earlier in the spring, that there would be these days when they would be together. Um, and Nanapashmet said, we should, not, um, we should not look at the presence of the English mustering and practicing military things as intended to frighten the Poconocket. He said, no, that's probably the Massasoit standing there look and go like, guys, look who belongs to us. That in, with the tremendous death rate among the Poconocket and the Narragansett near to them, just across the river and across the bay, untouched by the plague that had swept through between 16 and 1618, he needed to secure himself in what was a very dangerous uh, situation. And so Nana Pashmet said, look at it from the perspective of one ally standing and looking at what is being brought by the other ally. So often we hear conclusions that because Plymouth Colony is ultimately absorbed into Massachusetts Bay Colony by the 1690s under the same royal charter, that Plymouth Colony was insignificant, that it didn't contribute anything to the American legacy or the American experiment because it was absorbed into its, for lack of a better term, its big sister uh, up on the Charles River. Uh, Do you agree with that statement? No, not at all. <laughs> and I, um, I feel sometimes like I'm the Edith Hamilton of Plymouth Colony. She talks about Athens and she said there was this little white hot center of creative light in Athens that has been shining forth ever since. And what, as, as I get deeper and deeper into the 17th century representations of New England's history, what you begin to see is a whitewashing of Plymouth's contribution. So for our listeners that were alive in the 50s, I want you to think backward to the, the kind of controversies between the communists and the socialists at the height of the McCarthy era and how they were trying to separate one from another and the socialists trying to push back at the, the communists so that they weren't be melded. That was happening here in New England between the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony and the colony at Plymouth, which started within a separatist reformed Christian movement. What gets ignored is that Massachusetts is looking at Plymouth. They are mimicking its uh, worship service. They are mimicking the way it bills church officers. In fact, Edward Winslow and Samuel Fuller go north to Salem to teach them how to create a church covenant, to teach them how to lay hands on and uh, ordain their ministry. Plymouth is so innovative in law, years ahead of Massachusetts, but Massachusetts was far more powerful and it was able to essentially, by end of century, advertise itself better. When you look at Cotton Mather's 1702 
history of New England, which included biographies of key men, um, essentially he, he dismisses Bradford's separatist experience within one sentence. He moves on as if, I'm going to acknowledge this, and then we're going to disappear it. He was just like we were. So that, um, and I don't think we, we talked about this in recent days. I've been reading a lot of Nathaniel Morton, who was William Bradford's nephew, and looking at all of the poetry that is written when key Plymouth figures die, and realizing there may be a creative writing movement that just hasn't survived. And because Morton collected these poems of elegy, but it shows us there are people here writing poetry. We just, it's not in our hands anymore. But there may be a very vivid writing experience lost to us, but we also need to go back and revisit those law codes and, and study the general fundamentals, which many legal historians, and again, this is not getting looked at, that over time, between 1636 and the final 1685 law code, the general fundamentals becomes the first bill of rights within the English-speaking Atlantic world. It's an incredibly important document. Recently, there was, there was an article from the BBC that um, was so glib and so derisive of Plymouth and showed so little understanding. And the writer had reached out to the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and I was shocked. They did an easy reading of influence is if the language is identical. So they just dismissed the Mayflower Compact's potential contribution to the Constitution instead of doing the mature understanding as Neil Ferguson talks about in Civilization, the West and the Rest, that there are six means whereby um, the West has become so influential and one of those is it creates institutions and that's what the Mayflower Compact did. It created institutions that created the New England way, the New England way in the 18th century joining with Virginian thought in the creation of our founding documents. It's all there in process. It is not there in the language, although John Adams said to John Quincy Adams late in life, it was all about the compact. And we need to look at how his knowledge of Plymouth. He even was reading Edward Winslow. He had good news from New England in his library. It's in the Boston Public Library collections now. He knew Plymouth well. And even though he was not one of the framers because he was in England as a diplomat, his writings on constitutionalism, the Massachusetts Constitution that he drafted, were influential on the founders. So much of our national conversation right now, and Brooks talks a lot about this in The Second Mountain, as well as his writings for The New York Times, is looking at civic engagement and the role of a citizenry in the success of the American experiment. Did such a concept exist in 17th century England, New England, or the Wampanoag homeland? And what did it mean to leaders like William Bradford or the Massasoit Usamequin who were elected by their communities, by their citizens, to serve? There is a concept, 
I, I can't speak to, to the native sensibility, but there's a, con, there's a concept among Reformed Christians that if your neighbors ask you to do something and there is no strong reason why you cannot do it, as a Christian, you must do it. And my heart breaks for William Bradford in the spring of 1624. So think of this young man. As you say, they were all young men. He had lost his wife. She had fallen from Mayflower and drowned. He was alone in the world from early December 1620 until the summer of 1623. He marries in August of 1623. And in 1624, he's about to become a father again. And before the election court is held in the spring, he says, can I just be relieved this year? and they return him to office, and he does it. And 1624 is 1624 and 1625, when he's called back into office, are the two most dangerous years in the earliest years of the colony because he has infiltrators. He even has spies on his own council that he has those men voted into office that he trusts but chief men within the community are invited to sit in on meetings, even though they might not have voting power. He knows that the merchants have sent men to try to overthrow the church here and overthrow the government. And he knows there are spies at his own table listening to these meetings. So he has to create messages. So let's say you're one of the spies, Hillary. I gather all of my my loyal folks together and say, all right, Hillary's in the room, therefore you've got to say this because she's got to take this news back to the merchants. What he had to go through, and he just wanted to be a young father and not have these heavy duties and be with his wife, be with the child, but yet he went back and he had to do some things that were very distasteful to him, but he did it to protect the colony. And when he finally confronted those that would have blasted the community apart, he interrupted their mails. He copied their letters. And when he stood in front of the community, he said to everyone, I think they were aghast that he had taken these, these letters. He held the letters up and he said this, did you think I did this as myself? I did this as the governor. And I think in a kind of Machiavellian tradition. And William Brewster brought Machiavelli on the Mayflower. William Bradford read Guicciardini, the great Italian politician and historian. These men were versed in the latest French and Italian Renaissance thought on government. He did it because he had to do it, because he needed to stabilize the community that he saw as fragile, and that was the community that was going to protect the church he wanted to plant. I'm thinking back to what you were talking about with the Plymouth-Poconocket alliance and some of the uh, hypothesized motivations that may have driven Massasoit to seek this alliance with Plymouth Colony. Because as we know, indigenous communities around New England had had contact with Europeans for a century before Mayflower. Mayflower is by no means the first European contact. So there is two or three generations of Sachems, of Sagamores, leaders in indigenous communities who have encountered Europeans before. Could you look at the Plymouth-Poconocket Alliance 
from Massasoit's perspective in the same way that you just described William Bradford's treatment of the Lyford-Oldham incident in 1624, that the Massasoit-Usamequin is making this choice not as himself, but as a Sachem who is going to uh, encounter these Europeans who's going to make some form of alliance for the betterment of the community, even though there is a possibility that it could create factions and fracture the community. That's a really interesting point, that is. And he's got so many moving pieces. Uh, We don't really understand the dynamic between Disquantum and the Massasoit. We don't really understand the dynamic between the Massasoit and Samoset. Nanapashmet had a very cast a cold eye on what was happening. And Nanapashmet said, let's break down the first appearance. It is not a Poconocket person that is sent in among the strangers. It is someone eastward from Maine. It is someone who is not the Massasoit's people. And Nanapashmet said, if you think of it like a military point man, if something happens to Samoset, it's not one of his own that's harmed. And so when Samoset is well-treated and well-hosted and returns safely, then he sends in another man. And he's, he's doing that reconnaissance to make certain that when he finally appears, everything is going to go as he wants it, and he does not endanger any of his people. I think one of the most exciting trends in the research in 17th century New England, indigenous and European-based study of late has been the re-sophistication of both indigenous communities and European-based colonial communities. That we are re-examining the intellectual life of these people, we are re-examining the political landscape, community construction, and in ways that is complicating our story and making it more human and less simplistic, but I think ultimately in the end will improve our understanding of how these communities are functioning. Exactly. And that makes me think of one of Brooks's final lines in the book where he says that honest communities tell complicated stories. So as Plymouth Patuxet's senior historian, what does that idea mean to you looking ahead at 2021, the 400th commemoration of Thanksgiving, and really the kickoff of the 400th commemorations of communities across New England and the rest of the colonial world. The other day I was asked, um, what was the purpose of Mayflower II? And I said, it's, it's a memory device. And it is a place where, as with any symbol, the meaning of that symbol is in the eye of the beholder. So someone who is affected strongly by colonialism, it is a memory device for that pattern within our history. For those that may be interested in family history or constitutionalism or religious freedom, it has that standing. And what we need to do is be that place where both of these strands can stand side by side in safety and that we can encourage them to speak to both of those traditions because Paul Johnson, the historian in his massive one-volume history of the United States, said, because the United States is such a young nation, the 
the, essentially the crimes of its founding are fresh within our memory. He said, older European nations, they've happened millennia ago. And so you aren't aware of the aggressions of the Danes and the Jutes and, and the Angles. That is all forgotten now. It doesn't carry the passion, but we are so young and our memory so fresh. And we need to look at those moments. David Brooks talks about, we need to look at the places of heroism and the places of struggle. And I think that's what Plymouth is all about, of celebrating those moments of arising to a challenge and also understanding human frailty and flaws and always asking a question, trying never to reach a judgment, but get to the next question. Because as individuals, do we even know ourselves well, much less pretending we know the actions of someone we're looking at across the table or trying to look at them in the past? That's truly looking through a glass darkly. So instead of being judgmental, it's being questioning and always trying to get closer and closer to a perception of truth and empathy for the person of the past. I think that's our job. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, Join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is a product of the Center for 17th Century Studies at Plymouth Patuxent Museums, hosted by Hilary Goodno and produced by Tom Begley and Hilary Goodno. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>